0: You are listening to Space Midrash. The space age has arrived and our culture, our civilization is unprepared. The narrative collapse is in effect. They can lead established cultures to irrelevancy or we can lead each other into the future we want to become. I believe in an artful and ethical humanity thriving amongst the cosmos, but we will only become those people if we tell the story that inspires us to become those people. This is episode 25 of Space Midrash, Schmooze with Paul Levinson, exploring the universe through scholarship, sci-fi, and songwriting. Paul Levinson is a man of many talents and passions. He's a McLuhan expert, a sci-fi author, a singer-songwriter, a grandfather, and a professor. I recently had the pleasure of interviewing him, here for Space Midrash because of his involvement in a volume entitled Touching the Face of the Cosmos on the Intersection of Religion and Space Travel. Paul is a co-editor, and he also has a piece inside of that edition. And during our conversation, we talked about the long-standing connection between sci-fi authors and readers through conferences and conventions, as well as Paul's Jewish identity, and which of the four sons from the Passover Seder he identifies with which was a surprise given what a wise and nice guy I found him to be. We also discussed his album, Welcome Up, which was released in 2020 and produced over many years with themes relating back to his books. Paul shared with me his belief that sci-fi, rock and roll and media studies are just different expressions of himself and that he strives to create art that is meaningful and accessible to everyone. What I found most inspiring about Paul was his commitment to community. His projects are feats of friendship and group pursuits of art and meaning. If you're interested in learning more about Paul's work and the intersection of religion and space travel, as well as his most recent project, check out more, get all the links to all of his projects at spacemidrash.com Paul Levinson. That's the episode page. So without further ado, this is our interview. I have no introduction right here. It's it's me here with, with you, Paul Evanson. Tell us, where are you on earth and how do you spend your time?
1: Well, right now I'm at home, which is about, mm, about uh, I don't know, about 10 miles north of New York City, the northern end of New York City, the Bronx, which is where I grew up and lived for a good few years. The closest town or city i guess to where i am right now is white plains new york i think i read somewhere it was named because it snowed so much back then i mean this year there was hardly any snow at all and as far as who i am and what i do i do a lot of different things you know as i always say in my interviews i wear a lot of hats probably because i don't have that much hair on my head (laughs) But one of the things that's always been very true of me is that if I love something in the popular culture, I'm always irresistibly tempted to also try to create it. So, the two things I loved most when I was growing up in the Bronx in the 1950s was rock and roll music. I used to listen to Alan Freed and then Murray the K on WINS and science fiction. I read every novel and story that Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke had written. And so, it wasn't too long before I began trying to uh, create and produce both of those My scholarly life came a little later. My father wanted me to be a lawyer. He was a lawyer himself. And as you can tell already, I like talking, but um, (laughs) I don't like particularly staying up all night and reading case law. So instead I went into several programs in which I studied the media, which I was already very interested in.
0: What does being Jewish mean to you? And has that changed from what it meant a hundred years ago and what you think it may mean a hundred years from now
1: well i hope obviously i don't know what being jewish was like a hundred years ago because i wasn't alive back then but um what it means to me is uh, you know something very important very profound in terms of what it doesn't mean does not mean and also in terms of what it does mean to me what it does not mean to me is following the essence of religious guidelines around the holidays. I don't much care how the Passover Seder table is set, but I do very much love Seders, and I love the family celebrations that come with the Jewish religion, and that to me are really in many ways the essence. Of our religion. So, not so much what's written in the Torah, although from what I've read of it in translation, I can read a little bit of Hebrew. I was bar mitzvahed, but not enough to really read it in its original form. So, it's not that I disagree with that. There are a lot of aspects that I, in fact, do agree with and think are very important. But for me, being Jewish means being part of that culture and the holidays are the first thing that comes to mind. I don't want anyone to think I'm a glutton. I love eating so much, that's why. <laughs> but and it's not even really the food, though. It's the family. To me, has always been an essential part of my life. But to give you an idea of what kind of Jew I've been, you know, in the uh, Seder ceremony, I guess my favorite part of it is the four sons. They have four sons. You know, they ask questions. And to me, to this very day, but going back to when I was a kid, I always identified with the wicked son. (laughs) I was glad it was was smart to actually put that in there. You know, so to me, it's a a really, I think, a wonderful, lucky thing, because obviously I had no control over that, that I was born into the Jewish religion. You talked about how you consumed all the rock and roll and
0: science fiction you could get your hands on. How did that play into your growing up?
1: Well, music, ever since I can remember, was always a very important part of my life. I mean, that even intersects with Judaism. I enjoyed going to shul, you know, with my father, and and I enjoyed the the musicality of that. And again, I, I tended always to identify more with the cantor than the rabbi because it's something, you know, it's hard to disagree with a cantor, right? He's just, you know, singing. And so I don't even remember the exact age I was when I first began getting interested in rock and roll music, but I immediately identified with it. And uh, a a very important time in my life was when I was in the sixth grade in the Bronx going to PS ninety. And I still have some friends from back then, Joel Iskowitz, who's a renowned illustrator. He's illustrated some of my books. We're still friends after all these years. And it was then that I formed a group. And again, you can see how egotistical uh, I am. It was the name of the group was Little Levy and the Emeralds. And uh, I have no idea even why I, I, I saw something about an emerald at some point. I thought it would be an interesting name. Yeah, I guess I know why there was a big group then called the Diamonds. They had songs like Little Darling, Bum, 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 so I. So was, I was aware of those groups. And from that moment on, I've always been doing one thing or another, in music and it, it brings me an enormous amount of joy i mean just last night and this is very often the case the last thing i do before i shut down everything in the family room and you know my wife and i go up to the bedroom is i usually just like listen to music that i love And it's a great way to end the day I also found failure early on, and again, this is just luck, that I have a great appreciation of harmony, vocal harmony, and I'm able to do harmony as well. So one of the things I did in those very, very early days before I started writing songs, before I started recording, was work out harmony parts with the people, other guys in my group, and it sounded pretty good. So you produce and write music
0: and you you write songs and you write science fiction that's short and long, and you teach and you produce scholarship, including, I recently got uh, in print, I'd had it on Kindle, but in print, your digital McLuhan volume, which was updated as recently as February, 2023, which was really awesome to see. But you're also a person who connects and leads community among all of those different things, science fiction, music. I am curious, you know, from, from loving music as a young person and science fiction as a young person. like How do you find a groove doing all of those things? And you're also a TV critic as well and have a lot of places in media and expressions in media that aren't academic.
1: Yeah, so just one slight clarification: Would you got a copy of? I'm very happy to hear is McLuhan in an Age of Social Media, correct? Which I yeah. first published actually in 2015. I think of it as a chapter that, if uh, my publisher Routledge had wanted to come out with a new edition of Digital McLuhan, which was published back in 1999 2000, that would have been a very good chapter. And for all I know, maybe they did, but I asked them. I didn't get an answer fast enough. So I figured, you know what? This is the age of Kindle. I'll publish this book through my own company, Connected Editions. And so, but I'm glad that you uh, find that book valuable. So, what was your question again? I got so So, off my, t- my question is you know, you, you dabble in
0: rock and roll, science fiction, media studies, and being connected with the people who are part of all of those things. How did you find a groove in that? I mean, that, that's really awesome. That's, that's cool, I think. So I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, growing up and coming to the place where you are now, how did you find and craft that groove?
1: Well, that's a great question. And the answer is it, I didn't have to find any number of grooves. It's the same groove for me. So if I have an idea, maybe I'll write a lyric with or without music. If it doesn't have music, I'll get somebody else to write the music. So I've done it both ways. Or maybe I'll write a story. Or maybe I'll write a novel. Or maybe I'll write a story and then later turn that story into a novel, even after the story has been published. Or maybe I'll put it into a nonfiction book or a nonfiction article. And it's a pretty uh, certain expectation that in all of that sooner or later i'll be talking about it in one or another of my classes because to me going in and teaching a class whether it's an undergraduate class at fordham or a graduate class or a class through zoom or a class in person all of those things are a kind of music for me and you know because of that you know people often are surprised to hear this or see and hear this with their own eyes. I never teach a class from notes. And I never prepare my class beforehand other than to think about it. And then I come in and talk and get involved with uh, the students and discussions of the readings or the various topics. So what's the difference between talking to a class, talking to you right now, and writing and singing a song for me there's not that much difference they come from the same part of my mind or brain or soul or whatever you want to call that part that creates
0: what do you believe about the future of humanity in space
1: i think it's the only place that we will ultimately be able to survive and thrive as a species. First of all, you know, using the word ultimately, astronomers and astrophysicists all agree that I don't know how many millions of years it is, but eventually our Earth will be pulled into the sun. Maybe we'll have developed some kind of technology that can stop that, but a far better way of dealing with that ultimate likely demise is to get off this planet. But that's just part of it. The other part of it is, like I think all thinking people, I and we want to know as much as we can of what we're doing here, what existence is. And again, this relates to religion. That's what religions try to answer. But I think there's a physical component to this. I think we'll never be able to get anything close to It will never probably get a complete answer, but certainly anything much more than we have already when we're struggling to understand who we are from this little pebble of a planet that is existing in this immense, infinite universe. And so that's why I think it's so important for us to get off this planet and out into space. And I was just actually... um, Communicating with somebody on Twitter, I don't even know the person's real name. They have a handle, so who knows what the person's real name is? And one of the things that um, he or she said to me was, "You know, isn't?" And I was saying to that person something similar to what I just said to you. And the person said to me on Twitter, "Isn't that a little bit of an imperialistic point of view? You want human beings to go out there and take over other?" sentient beings planets and i said no i'm not saying that at all i just want us to go out there we don't have to conquer or have dominion over that but i think that i mean to me ever since i've been also a little kid it's been a very very obvious point point. and i remember how happy i was when when the soviets first launched their satellites when yuri Gagarin was up in space then john glenn I was about 13 years old then. And I remember saying to my friends and my family, good, we're finally getting out there. And I I think we need more of that.
0: Okay. So I want to ask you, I didn't have this in my original set of questions, but where were you when they landed on the moon for the first time? What, What were you up to in July, 1969?
1: Well, I was with my girlfriend, Tina, who would become my wife, let's say, if it was 1969. We were married in 1976, so some seven years later, I was actually over at her house, and I was we were watching Walter Cronkite look up and say, oh, my God, we're, we're on the moon. And I should mention, you know, Walter Cronkite, he's someone who people my age grew up with. He was there for all the important things. He was there for the horrible tragedies like when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and he was there for these wonderful triumphs. But I have to say, little did I ever think then, back in 1969, if somebody had asked me, well, where do you think we'll be in 2023? Little did I think back then that my ass would be, well, not much further, if at all, out into space. Back then, I naively thought, Are you kidding? Uh, By 2023, we'll be all over the galaxy, maybe beyond the galaxy. How can science
0: fiction be used to explore uh, Jewish culture or identity?
1: Well, first of all, I got to say, apropos of that question, one of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Jack Dan, who is a Jewish guy, grew up uh, here on the East Coast in the United States. Is now living in Australia, got married there, very happy guy, wonderful writer. And before I started writing and publishing science fiction, there used to be uh, a shop in New York, in Greenwich Village, called the Science Fiction Bookshop. And I remember I went down there. This would now probably be like maybe the late 1970s. And so at this point, I've been reading science fiction, thinking about science fiction, ingesting science fiction since the 1950s. But for whatever reason, I didn't even know this bookstore existed, so I went down there when I found out that it did. And I remember I picked up two things and bought both those things, which is a big deal for me, cheapskate that I am, and I didn't have all that much money then. One was actually a book by Joseph Petruche, which was his assessment of Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy, which we can talk more about that i still think it's the best science fiction i've ever read i don't think however that the apple tv series has been quite up to par with asimov's original work but the other book i picked up there is the answer to your question or part of the answer it's uh, an anthology called wandering stars that jack dan both Edited, wrote a story in, and he collected a whole bunch of stories. And basically, it's about Jewish culture out there in space. And one of the things I was so happy to have in Touching the Face of the Cosmos, I was able to reprint a wonderful story by Jack uh, Dan. In fact, a, a novella-length story. So I think that because of what I said about the uniqueness of the Jewish religion, the way we have of looking at things. What do I mean by that? You know, the the Yiddish sense of humor, the Yiddish cup, the perspective on things. I think every culture has those unique aspects. It plays very well in science fiction about space, which is why in my one space traveling novel, Borrowed Tides, I made sure that at least someone there was Jewish. I didn't know, by the way, when I started writing the novel that I was going to have a Seder in space, but that came quite naturally. Can media ecology or media studies
0: be used as well to explore uh, Judaism or Jewish thinking?
1: Oh, 100 percent, because media ecology is about the interrelationship of various media. And that actually starts with speech itself, then various forms of writing, then telephone, radio, television, social media, et cetera. And uh, I, this is the case of all religions, but I think uh, Jewish religion has some uniquely communicative aspects. Again, let's go back to the Seder. It's, it's such a fundamental ceremony. If you think about the various parts that people read or, and how the Seder is conducted— and how the person who's leading the seder decides who's going to say what part as everyone goes around reading various parts of the seder texts that itself you could do a study in media regarding that and then there's also you know just at the other end of the spectrum if you think about the bosch belt if you think about the catskills there are two parts to that right there's the comedy But there's also the music. And you know, somebody standing up there playing the piano or the the trumpet, but doing it to by mere best of shame, the chest is in the you know, that that is unique and and very beautiful. And so that that could be and should be studied also. One thing I've
0: noticed is there's a strong sense of community among science fiction producers, writers, and um, producers of all sorts, and the consumers. And there was something you talked about before when you're talking about the moon landing and all the, the early space things and throughout the 60s and 70s, that feeling that connection to humanity as opposed to the one nation who got the specific mission. I feel I see that in science fiction communities of all flavors. And so I'm, I'm wondering... Asking you as you know somebody on the inside. What can we learn from that kind of relationship between the science fiction communities that are out there?
1: Well, that's something. That's an excellent question because I think the public doesn't realize that. And one of the things that I'm proudest of is I was president, elected president of the Science Fiction Writers of America twice back in the late 1990s, early 2000s. But even before then, what the public also doesn't realize is there are probably a hundred or more conferences that take place in the United States and across the world in which science fiction authors come and they sit on panels and talk about various things like how does time travel play out in in this particular television series, whatever they're talking about, and there are fans who come they enjoy those talks they talk to the authors part of it is they might also buy some of our books that's always great but there is this really profound sense of community and to me in terms of what i was saying before there's almost no difference at all between that and teaching a formal class in science fiction or whatever at fordham it's the same process it's me as a creator communicating with people who enjoy what I create and on the other side of that of course I'm a fan and I actually back in the you know I told you about Foundation I wrote an article about Foundation and Dune which then and now this is then would be the late 1970s are still my two favorite science fiction series and uh, I was brash enough to send a copy of the article to Isaac Asimov. And about two weeks later, I get a postcard from him. And uh, I I still have that postcard, which he says, thanks so much for sending me the article. Truthfully, I had nothing like that in my mind when I was writing those stories. But you put it in a really good way. And as a fan, that was a real Thrilled to me. And, you know, later on, I met Isaac Asimov at a conference. And so th- that wasn't me as an author, that was me as a fan. And there was like a natural kinship, uh, and there there always is. And getting back to my being an author, one of the most satisfying things for me or, or any author is to run into someone, it could be now online, it used to be just only in person. Someone who has read your book and a novel and they want to talk to you about it. I have to tell you one funny story, though. I was once at a conference, I don't even know where it was up in Albany, New York. I'm sitting there signing copies. And believe it or not, it was Borrowed Tides. I'm sitting there signing copies. And some guy about 10 years younger than me comes up and says to me, You know, I really hated this book, but I bought it, so I might as well get your signature on it. I hope that's okay. And uh, I what I, I did when I put my signature in saying I wrote, Well, I'm sorry you hated it, but I'm glad you asked my signature. Here it is. So even that was a form of community. I don't expect everybody to love my work. It it meant enough to him to want to meet me. That was that was good enough. It's so, really fun. How does religion relate to space travel
0: or spacefaring humanity?
1: Oh, you know, there I think it's 100% clear. People often wrongly paint religion and science as being irreconcilably opposed to one another. Now, it's true that there are differences. Religion gets its knowledge through faith. You think that such and such is the case because you believe in it. Science wants evidence but what is often overlooked i think and this was the basis of touching the face of the cosmos that i uh put together with uh, michael waltermoth and by the way we're we're in the process of putting together a second volume and we have most of it done by maybe six months or so before that actually is completed but if you think about what is religion trying to do It is trying to provide some perspective on who we are in the universe. At the very least, religion recognizes that there is this profound question that all thinking beings have, which is, we don't think about it every day maybe, but it is still, you know, what am I doing here? And part of that is what is life versus death, part of that is what is the future. Well, getting out into space is something that deals with that particular issue. And I think it does it in a, in a really good uh, way. Touching the face
0: of the cosmos is a delightful anthology. I got my copy right here and I bought a copy from my mom who loves ecumenical literature and things of that nature. And I, it's just really, it's really fantastic. And you have a piece in there and you edited it with Michael Waldmatha. How did this book come about and what are the different dimensions that are explored through the pieces?
1: Well, it came about the way many things do in the scholarly world. I was at a conference, I can tell you who organized the conference, a a sort of futuristic artist and professor by the name of Tom Clankostein organized a conference in Brooklyn. And uh, for me, that was an easy commute. Michael Waltham flew all the way in from Germany to attend that conference, and we were up there on a panel talking about the future, not about space in particular, but we found that both of us were talking about the same thing, that as far as we could see, the best path forward for humanity is to get off of and beyond this planet, which is not to say we should forget about the planet. People often misunderstand that also. We're not saying who cares about the planet. We're not saying that you have to pay attention to climate change. No, you do. You do have to do things to improve the planet, absolutely. But ultimately, we were both saying from different perspectives that we need to get off this planet I was saying this as a media and a science fiction writer. Walter Moth was saying it as a professor of religion and religious studies in Germany. And in that instant that's where what i just said about the connection between what religions seek to answer and what science seeks to answer and can be answered better than just here on earth by going out into space that was where we realized that we were on a common path and we began talking well, maybe we should organize a conference along this and you know, one of us, I can't remember who said hey, I, maybe it was me. I'm always looking to uh, confuse the world more by getting <laughs> another publication out there. I said, hey, maybe we should order an anthology, You put together an anthology on this. And I do remember it was my idea to say, let's make it half science fiction and half nonfiction because it takes both of those perspectives to delve into this.
0: Were there any articles or stories that and it emerged in what was what was published that surprised you or turned on new ideas in your mind
1: yeah well it's interesting in terms of you know new ideas first of all one overarching thing we got an enormous response to our call for papers and you know we could have made the uh the book twice as long but we wanted to get it out and that's why we're doing you know a second volume on this book but i'll just mention one and you know i could say you know there were unique things about all of them but one of the articles was written by joshua ambrosius who uh has uh, also he's not a science fiction writer he's very interested in investigating the preconditions on planet Earth for uh, getting out into space. And he, for at least now going back 10 years, has been researching the connection between how much of a correlation is there, either pro or con, among how deeply a person is involved in religion, and whether they think it makes sense to go out into space and you might think off the top of your head that when we decide as human beings is it important to go out into space or not that atheists and agnostics might be more likely to say let's go out into space because religion does seem to have at least its self-conception is that they already have many of the answers So one of the things that surprised me was Ambrosius discovered that, no, it's not that way at all, and that there are many people who are deeply immersed in religions, and they are even more excited than people who are total atheists as far as uh, why it is that we should go out into space. And that actually sort of proves the very presumption of the anthology that there's an inherent connection between religion and space travel. You open, or early on at least,
0: you have an interview that you had with pioneering astronaut John Glenn, who was a statesman and is a true cowboy in the sense that he was in that first class of astronauts and went again as a shuttle astronaut. And his experience, as you guys talked about, it seems very spiritually expansive to him, but also religiously reinforceful. How do you think those two forces, religion and spirituality will struggle or reconcile in the space age? And do you think that that's different for Christians, Jewish folks, people of other religions or spiritualities?
1: Well, that's also a great question. First of all, as far as the interview with John Glenn, what a thrill that was to like be sitting He was behind the desk with his wife, and I'm talking to him. I mean, it was just an amazing experience. And, you know, he's a very pragmatic, he was a very pragmatic person. Not only that, he was then a former senator. So he usually talks about bread and butter issues. And it was great being able to steer the conversation into some of these spiritual issues. And and the other thing, though, that's sad is, as far as I know, that's probably the last certainly in-depth interview uh, with John Glenn before he passed away. And so I'm, I really I feel privileged to have been able to get out there. And by the way, here, let me give uh, credit. I mentioned his name before. He'll be thrilled that he's being mentioned so much in this interview. My old friend Joel Iskowitz had previously been out in Columbus, Ohio, to meet with John Glenn, because he was commissioned to do some kind of portrait and even a bust of John Glenn. And when he came back to New York, he told me about it. I said, that's really fabulous. And, you know, I couldn't help myself. I said, you know, we're putting together this book. And boy, would I left to interview John Glenn. And he said, "Uh, let me figure out, maybe we can, you know, work that out. And in fact, he did. And in fact, his illustration is what is on the cover of Touching the Face of the Cosmos. We actually have two slightly different covers. The hard cover is Joel Liskowicz; it's like he's more official. The slightly hipper, trendier cover is done by another great artist, Brittany Miller, who now, by the way, is really having a lot of people discovering her work. And so she did the version for the soft cover, and and maybe also for the Kindle edition. But again, what was your question? What am I answering here exactly? My, my, my question
0: was I. From that particular interview and what you brought up, it seems that it was very spiritually expansive for him his experiences in space, but that his his religious self conception was reinforced by that. Um, and so, I'm curious if you think the forces of spirituality and religion are they are they going to struggle or reconcile? Are they different in the space age and in this that
1: quest? So, okay, that's a great question. I interviewed John Glenn. I've also spoken to other astronauts. I met Rusty Schweickart, uh, an Apollo astronaut cool. at, at a conference in California years ago. Every single person who's been in space, off this planet in space, says exactly the same thing, that when they look back at Earth from space, it indeed clarifies and intensifies their spiritual feeling. And they almost say it can't help but do that. And you know, doubt saw the John Glenn interview, it didn't change his view. As you just said, it reinforced. He, he came up there with certain views, and those views were reinforced. And that makes sense, if you think about it, because, you know, you get this feeling sometimes on Earth. I like going swimming a lot. We, uh, we spend some time on Cape Cod. I've never been out into space, but you know, when you go swimming and you swim out a pretty long way and you're just like sort of floating in the water, looking around, you get a a somewhat similar feeling, I think. And it reinforces the fact that there is something more, much more to this life, this existence than we focus on or even think about on a day-by-day basis, and it's experiences like that that do bring those other feelings to the fore, and I think that uh, that's a very, very good thing for us. We need more of that.
0: The book also includes a chapter from part two of your book, Borrowed Tides, in which a spaceship crew is having a Passover Seder. And a few moments ago, as we were just, as we were, as we were schmoozing, you you said that when you started the book, you wanted to have a Jewish character, but that you didn't intend on having a Passover Seder, but that, that, that emerged. So I'm I'm curious what emerged, what inspired that Passover Seder and then that specific chapter coming into this volume?
1: All right. Well, not to give away too much of the book for, for those listeners who haven't read it, but at the time the Seder takes place, there is a heated discussion between father and son and just members of that community about what they should do the ship is on its way back to earth should they just go along with it should they leave it should they get outside the ship maybe to see what's going on and so That particular moment in time in the novel was sort of a coming of age for one of the heroes, Aaron, one of his sons, Noah. And so it seemed to me this is like a perfect time to, again... The four sons at the seder is Noah going to be the wise son? Is he going to be the evil son? Is he going to be uh, you know the son who can't ask questions at all? He's certainly not the, the not very smart son, which I was always uh, on. That's like the weakest part of those four sons. They they come up with a better example. Nobody wants to be that son. So it just seemed to me as a writer that the best way of expressing that conflict between generations and between what a son should do vis-a-vis what his father wants him to do would be to situate it at the Seder table. And then I said, okay, well, first I said, well, how can you have a Seder in space? But then I said, why not? And so that's what that chapter uh, was all about. That's where it came from. There's another chapter in this book. It's nonfiction and it's,
0: it's from your wife about talking to children about space and the questions that they have. You've been a professor as well for a long time and you have kids and grandkids. So I'm curious in terms of, of what she contributed there and, and some broader perspectives, just the reflections on younger people and their curiosity about space.
1: That's a great question. First of all, that's Molly Vazek-Levinson, our daughter, uh, not my wife, you know, Okay, Okay. Hey. Oh, apologies. It's okay. And I remember she, you know, when I told her we, and I, you know, at one of our family gatherings or whatever, I mentioned that we're working on this book. So she called me the next day and said, you know, Dad, I have an idea for the book. What do you think of this? I said, well, you know, tell me. And she said, well, you know, I, I teach, she runs a, uh, a nursery school in Manhattan. And she said, you know, my kids talk about these things all the time. I said, you you mean they talk about space? She said, yeah, they're interested in it. One of the things we teach them when they look up at the sky, and she said, well, how about I sort of interview them and then write an article which tells the world what they're thinking. And this immediately struck me as a wonderful idea. And Molly discovered something which I sort of, you know, like most great discoveries. You sort of know they're true before they're discovered. Then once they're discovered, you say, ah, of course. And what she tapped into, and this is a really, really crucial point. It's a, a sad point, and I'll tell you why. The crucial point is that little kids, five, six years old, have a better, more flexible, more imaginative conception of humans in space than we do than people our age and i'm sure i'm not the first person to notice this unfortunately what happens as we get older is that a lot of creativity a lot of our imagination gets steamrolled by the educational system by the demands of the workplace whatever and that's why uh so few people become carl sagan you know it, it, it's not that Carl Sagan was so unique in terms of human beings that have that point of view that look up at the stars and say billions and billions it's that most people by the time they get to what was Carl Sagan's age they just no longer think about those things and so it was incredibly refreshing to read what these kids were thinking about going out into space and I I found it very inspiring and it also help me redefine the problem of why more people aren't so enthusiastic about getting out into space. The problem isn't that they're just not thinking about it. The problem is they are no longer thinking about it. And so the key is to keep that sense of wonder alive in people, in kids, as they grow older.
0: You've also recently published an album, Uh, musically a rock album called welcome up and there's a song in there about alpha centauri that was uh it looks like it was written around the same time that borrowed tides was published i'm I'm curious if they're related at all
1: they're 100 related let me by the way say about that album my first album twice upon a rhyme came out in 1971 1972 my second album Welcome Up Songs of Space and Time came out in 2020, so I was trying to build up my audience. I took 50 years before I came out with my second album. It's a good thing I finally you know, came out with it. By the way, it's on Old Bear Records and Light in the Attic Records, two very good record companies. But yes, and that this, by the way, is a great example of what I was talking about before that to me writing a story writing a novel and writing a song are just two sides of the same coin at the time i was writing borrowed ties i was into alpha centauri and the way that that came to be written i wrote the lyrics Peter Rosenthal wrote the music. Peter Rosenthal played guitar on all the songs of Twice Upon a Rhyme, that 1972 album. I also wrote a song with him, Antique Shop, The Coming of Winter, which is on Twice Upon a Rhyme. So this is also a great example of the interconnectedness of all things. I was on, uh, believe it or not, a Fox News show. I say believe it or not because I disagree with all their opinions. They weren't quite that bad back in 2000. It was, though, a show, not so much a news show, but a show in which a group of science fiction writers, including me, were talking about what we thought the next century would bring. And uh, I was already writing Borrowed Tides then, by the way. And... Pete Rosenthal and I had been out of touch for a good 25 years. And he saw me on the show and sent me an email. We got back in touch. And for me, you know, since he's such a great guitarist, I said, hey, how would you like some lyrics you can write music to? He he said, sure. And that's how Alpha Centauri was written.
0: The album is is awesome. I was listening to it um, in the last week. It has a space... As space and sci-fi themes and motifs, and an overall feel, and, and time travel, and an overall feel like, uh, for me, like I'm traveling in a beautiful boxy convertible from the '50s or '60s towards Alpha Centauri, kind of coasting in and out of the speed of light and tuning into the local AM radio stations, but it's all the same trip. And, and from what you, you just described, you've been producing this over 50 years, and I brought up, I, you know, I saw in the notes that the lyrics for Alpha Centauri were from the year 2000 so it's a multi-decker endeavor and so i'm i'm curious how are the res- and you, you've also recorded some parts in different years as well how are the res- the respective parts different and how did they also come together
1: well okay first of all the way it came together is chris hoisington who produced the album he's part of a group called the brothers mcclure his brother anthony hoisington also runs their record company old bear records but Chris does the uh, production. He just contacted me out of the clear blue sky one day, I guess like in 2017, 2018. And he said, hey, you know, uh, I've just read Borrowed Tides. I love it. And I've been listening to some of your music this might sound crazy, he said, but is there any way you might be able to put together an album of science fiction songs? And I said, well, you don't have to ask twice. That's a great idea. Yes. And we we worked out a date when I would send him demos of the songs so he could work out arrangements. But as chris well knows one thing i didn't tell him at the time is i just had a handful of science fiction songs written then i had alpha centauri that i just mentioned uh apropos of intercell space i had a song called toss which i wrote in 2011 i wrote the lyrics a fellow by the name of john anilio wrote the music i had another song if i traveled to the past if I travel to the past to change your mind. Again, I wrote the lyrics and John O'Neill wrote the music, but I needed like eight, nine songs to put together an album. So I began thinking I, I have to like basically, I've written a lot of pieces of songs over the years. I've never finished them. One song I'd started writing, I guess like around 2004, 2005, was a song, a lyric called Samantha, and which I had is about love across alternate dimensions. And I, I had just written a couple of verses, but I was really inspired. I sat down at the piano, wrote the, that song, I wrote the music, finished the lyrics. Welcome Up, though, it, it was a very different genesis. Welcome Up goes back to when Tina, who became my wife in 1976 and we're still very happily married, back when she was my girlfriend, I would write songs for her. And one song in, uh, on uh, Twice Upon a Rhyme is the soft of your eyes, if anybody wants to hear a completed song that I wrote then. But I began writing another song, hiding behind a raindrop, shyly opening her sweet milk chocolate eyes. And, and that was basically Tina. But that's really all I had. I'll tell you just a quick interesting story about that I I had the melody pretty much done I had like a verse or two And then I was stumped. And one day back then, I was on a bus in New York City, and I was like half asleep, and I had a dream that Paul McCartney was on the bus. And he wakes me up and says, are you writing a song? And I say to him, yeah, this is like my half dream. And I basically sing to him, you know, what uh, I have. I say, I don't know where to go with the lyrics. And he said, what's the matter with you? Man, it's obvious. You, You start with hiding behind a raindrop. You start the next verse with hiding behind the same drop, and then you go off from there. You got a great rhyme. I said, thanks, Paul. So, but I wrote one more verse, but that's where the song was. Now, flash forward to the end of 2017, 2018. Tina says to me, you know, I love you, but uh, if you're looking for new songs, how about you finish this song that you started writing for me back in 1968? (laughs) I said, good point. So, uh, I did And so in 2018, I did finish the song, and that's how Welcome Up uh, got on the album. Another song, Picture Postcard World, I had completed then back in the 1960s. About the closest to real fame I got in the late 1960s is I had a group called The New Outlook. We were a folk rock group. One Sunday afternoon in the spring, we were singing in Central Park, and two people walked by. A man by the name of Mike Rashkow, who most people probably haven't heard of, but next to him is Ellie Greenwich. Ellie Greenwich wrote a lot of the Crystal songs. You know, she wrote songs to the Ronettes. She worked with Phil Spector. She was a really big writer. Anyway, to make a long story short, they had now a production company, this was the end of the 60s, and they assigned us to their label, not their label, their production company, They saw, and they basically made a deal with Atlantic Records, we came out with a couple of records, they sold a, a negative number of copies, but... So nothing much happened with that, but they also were interested. They asked me, what songs, other songs are you writing? So I played Picture Postcard World for them, and they really liked it, and they went into a recording studio. We didn't record it. They got like a sort of studio group to make this recording Picture Postcard World. Chris Horsington in 2018, he said, send me all the things that you ever wrote have anything to do with science fiction and i said well this is like sort of a post-apocalyptic song picture postcard world so he listened to it and he said oh this is great we'll put this on the album so that's how that got on the album and every one of those songs has like its own story i'll tell you one more story about how things travel through time cloudy sunday the last song on the album i wrote with linda kaplan i wrote the music she wrote the lyrics we went in a studio and recorded demos of those uh, of that song, two demos, one with me singing it, one with her singing it, and oh, I also got an instrumental track. And I had old acetates of all three of those. So I played the demo to Chris Heisington. He said, this is a, a great song, but before we went in and recorded it, I had a crazy idea. I listened to the instrumental track, and it still sounded pretty good. The only problem was it was such an old acetate. It had all kinds of scratches and, like, background noise on it. So I said to Chris, look, this might sound like a crazy idea, but the the song is Cloudy Sunday. It talks about, you know, fog on the brain, about rain falling. Can you, as a producer, make that sound like rain? and we can use my actual original recording even you know and you you can put in some more you know stuff in there he said yeah i can put in some harmonies so what what you hear on cloudy sunday on the Welcome Up, uh, Songs of Space and Time album is the original demo I recorded back in the late 1960s, overdubbed by Chris Heisington with his harmony and some more rain effects. And that's uh, proven to be one of the most popular songs on the album.
0: Yeah, that one's really cool. You have a lyric in Picture Postcard World about a couple having a uh, quote, high-tech shake like grandma used to make. Which is kind of a funny joke maybe in that they're so far that they're having grandma's high-tech shake recipe possibly. And so considering that that song um, is talking about a future and it was written 40, 50 years ago and we're now in this instant gram world that's uh, post filter and all that stuff. How does that relate to the evolution of culture now? And ha- how does that kind of like lyric age for you?
1: Well, right, that's a very good point. I put that in there in the first place because I want to situate the song in a distant future. In other words, in the 60s, nobody had high-tech instant shakes. So when you say, as you, you know, picked up a high-tech shake that grandma used to make, these people are two generations beyond something that didn't even happen in, in the 1960s. By the way, you can, on YouTube, I guess, I, I I put it up there, but I think somebody else did as well, you can hear the original definitive rock chorale version of Picture Postcard World recorded in the uh, 1960s, and you can even hear Ellie Greenwich's voice in there. She not only produced it, she recorded it. I changed a few of the lyrics for the version that was released in 2020 I I changed something to, like, I In in the 1960s version, I said, and pre-cooked powdered steak. And I changed that to cybernetic steak. I don't even know what cybernetic steak is. I mean, but it it sounds good. So I realized I had to update that to some extent. But I guess it shows, you know, in terms of, of what our popular culture is like and our lives are like, that we are, I think, always in a situation of we feel that too many artificial things are coming into our lives and undermining a better life that we had earlier which is an interesting point because i tend to be an optimist about technology in my nonfiction i'm always writing about how technology improves things but you know there are problems with technology you know people now left professors are concerned about chat gpt you know you're not going to know whether a student wrote a paper and not. i'm not too concerned about that i think professors will be able to tell you can have students talk about their work in class But I think that the future does tend to constantly pull the rug out from under us in terms of what we're used to, what we're comfortable with. And, you know, people who might not be aware of it, just think about how you feel every time you get a new smartphone, every time you update your computer, uh, even when you don't do that. Just about every single system that you use, every year or two, they happily tell you, okay, this is like a slightly new version of the system. You can use the old system if you want for the next two months, but then you're going to have to be on the new system. And that new system sometimes can be a real pain to use. So that's what Picture Postcard World was trying to capture.
0: When the album came out in January 2020, for me, and I think most of the general public, the Space Age seemed like uh, something of the past that had been kind of retired. And since that time, the story's really changed, and there's just a huge increase in space activity. I know, you know, I know it, these are all huge projects that take years and years of work. But from you know the outside looking in, it really specifically since your album came out, that the new Space Age is on. So I, I'm wondering, how do you, how does the uh,
1: album hold up three years later? With all that i think the uh, yeah i think the album is responsible for the new space <laughs> and, uh, you know that's why i'd uh love to be the case but but it's certainly not no i think what you said these things take decades to develop one of the things in popular culture and one of the things that uh sometimes can s- separate success from not being successful is just lucky synchronicity, at which you can't predict. Sometimes it works against you. There was a science fiction writer by the name of Jerry Pornell, who's no longer with us. He's probably best known for a book he wrote with Larry Nivens called The Moat in God's Eye pretty good, uh, very good novel. But the reason why I'm mentioning him is he wrote a novel and had it published, like, I think, like, it just came out, like, in 1991, right as and soon after the Soviet Union had collapsed and there no longer was the Soviet Union. And the whole novel is about a world 20-30 years from the 1990s in which the soviet union is a major player as it had been in the 1980s in the 1970s so there's an example of not having that synchrony in fact it was an asynchrony totally beyond the writer's control and i think both with touching the face of the cosmos and with welcome up songs of space and time there was a synchrony, which I, I think I wasn't the only person who was dissatisfied, you know, with the progress we made in space. And I think finally that has become begun to have an effect. And you are to show you how complicated all this is, I am a great admirer of Elon Musk and the work he's done in SpaceX which is, in effect, private industry getting out into space, not being reliant on the government. The problem with being reliant on the government here in the United States, the Democrats loved us getting to the moon in 1969. Richard Nixon and the Republicans did not, because any time people thought about getting to the moon, they thought JFK. And so Nixon did whatever he could to slow down the space program. Then there were some Democrats also, Walter Mondale, when he was Senate senator, he didn't think it was a particularly worthwhile thing to do. So there are a of factors. But the problem is a democracy is not the greatest foundation for a move out into space. Neither, though, is a totalitarian government, because that can be eaten away and destroyed simply because the people rebel against it. So we do need private enterprise out there. And I always and still admire Musk for what he's done with that, even though I don't like just about anything that he's done with Twitter. But you have to keep an open mind to these things. And rarely is it the case that someone is all good or all bad in their impact. You talked about, uh, when producing the album, you had a dream of Paul McCartney
0: helping you with lyrics on, on the bus, and um, one of your most recent projects is an alternate history of the Beatles. I, I was I, I want to hear more about, about that and that, how that might relate to your dreaming or uh, your inspiration, but just really more about that project.
1: Well, first of all you know i mentioned the the tragedies of the 1960s john f kennedy assassinated martin luther king robert f kennedy you know not really balanced by going to the moon because they're two very different things but you know among the great tragedies in the public i think individual tragedies was the assassination of john lennon in 1980 here in new york city and there was something about that that really cut to my soul and made my m- made me and my soul cry for a variety of reasons he, he's not even a politician he just makes music that people love and the fact that it happened in new york city where i grew up and i loved being a new yorker and the truth is i remember how upset i was when that first happened i've never gotten over that i'm as upset about that today as i was back then And one of the things about being able to write fiction and alternate histories in particular is you can do things that change the world in a way you would like it to be changed. So probably unconsciously, I was thinking ever since 1980, and that was about a good 10 years before I began publishing science fiction, you know, I I should write something that deals with this. But it wasn't really until a couple of years ago that I first began writing this story, It's Real Life. And it wasn't really until December 2021, going into January 2022, that I actually finished writing the story. The missing ingredient in what I was thinking about earlier, which unfortunately happened back in 2012, was a disc jockey at Fordham University on WFUV, a man by the name of Pete Fornatel, who was one of the sweetest guys that I ever, you know, worked with. And we had like a long, unique interrelationship. For example, when I first started teaching my first full-time teaching job at Fairleigh Dickinson University in Teaneck, New Jersey, in the early 1980s. I was teaching a course about the evolution of media and the relationship of radio and television. And I came across this great book called Radio in the Television Age that was co-written by Pete Fornatel. I didn't know who he was. I mean, I had heard him as a disc jockey, you know, back in the 1960s because, again, I grew up in the Bronx. I listened to WFUV. But I had no idea that he was also a, a an author, so I, I was you know delighted to find that book. And then you know, apropos of other songs that were not science fiction, so they didn't appear on Welcome Up. Songs of Space and Time. I I wrote a song uh, in the early nineteen seventies called Murray the K. Murray the K is back in town now. Murray the K was a disc jockey in the seventies. He was on WINS. I listened to him in the late 1950s. He continued to broadcast in the in 1960s. And uh, so he spanned the 50s from the 60s. Then he was nowhere to be found for a few years, but he came back to New York in 1972. So I actually wrote an article for the Village Voice. Uh, and I'm delighted that they published it. And Murray the K. Read the article, and he invited me to come work as a producer on his radio show on on WNBC. And um, I realized that it would be a good idea to get a theme song for him. So I sat down and wrote this theme song. Murray the K is back in town, and uh, I just went in with Pete Rosenthal playing guitar, a couple other guys. I did all the harmonies myself. And I brought in that demo and he loved it, you know, as anyone would, you know, anybody with an ego, he used to play it on his show. So anyway, back like, I guess, around 2011, uh, a, a Japanese company and a Korean company came out with a CD version of Twice Upon a Rhyme. And the custom back then was when you came out with a CD of an old album, you would put on the album some bonus tracks. So... I put on this uh CD of Twice Upon a Rhyme, My Murray the is Back in Town. A few months later, I'm walking by WFUV and I'm hearing Pete Fornatel's show. And I, I say, you know, what? I shouldn't get Pete a copy of Twice Upon a Rhyme. Maybe he'll, you know, play something from it on his show, Mixed Bag. I did that. Sure enough, two weeks later, he's playing Murray the K's Back in Town on his show. So we had this kind of relationship that's. And a good 40 or more years. I, I met him at a uh, a conference that was organized at Fordham University, but sadly he passed away in 2012. So thinking about the loss of John Lennon and thinking about the loss of Pete fornatel that's when the story of its real life came to me. A disc jockey, Pete fornatel in 1996, every time he hears its real love, which of course are Uh, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, singing a song that John Lennon did demos of, you know, shortly before he died, back in the late uh, 1979, 1980. So uh, Yoko Ono gave the remaining Beatles some demos that Lennon had done. They go and they record this absolutely beautiful song. But uh, his real life begins with... Pete announcing a couple of things. First of all, he's playing a song called It's Real Life. That was the original title of the song, which had become Real Love by the time the Beatles recorded it in the mid-1990s. And um, one thing leads to another. He goes downtown downtown takes uh, what was called Conrail in those days from Fordham University down to Grand Central Station. To make a long story short, he finds he's in a different reality back then, a reality in which the Beatles didn't break up in 1970, in which John Lennon wasn't murdered in 1980 and so that's that uh, was a uh, story was published t- just about a year ago january 2022 it's ne- now being made into a radio play Another, I mean, some, you can see how these things are interconnected. Uh, one of my first teaching jobs was in the master's program at the New School for Social Research, their MA in Media Studies. There was a student there by the name of Vin Tisi, who used to record things all the time. He loves sound. He now actually... Uh, Is program director for uh, an internet radio station called Kilowatt Radio. So after he read the story, just you know, last year he said to me, "Hey, I'd like to do a radio play of the story." Um, I have this guy Bobby Roberto who does like sort of a Rod Serling narrator's voice. What do you think about that? I said, "I think it's great." So. This is a good moment because this, the radio play is now in its final stages. I've already heard an early mix. It sounds great. I would expect in the next two or so or three weeks, it'll be up uh, on Kilowatt Radio. So anyone who's listening to this, tune in to Kilowatt Radio in the next few weeks. And uh, the, the whole radio play is you know just about 30 minutes or so. And for me, it's been a wonderful moment because... Obviously John Lennon wasn't alive in 1996, but it was somehow very comforting to be able to write a story in which uh, he, he was. I've also expanded this into a novel, by the way, not quite finished yet, but that'll be published in the next year or two as well. I guess I want to wrap up with uh,
0: the question of, if you went to space, what would you bring? Yeah. Well.
1: Is, is it only one thing or can I bring two
0: things? You can, there, there is no, uh, there is no secondary condition on this question.
1: All right, good well so first of all I would bring a lot of music all the music that I love if I could bring a thousand different songs I would bring that secondly I assume that if I was out into space there would be a telescope that I'd be able to control and see things as clearly as possible if there if it wasn't built into the ship I would certainly bring one with me third of all And this is very important. I'd want something that I could use to communicate to people back on Earth as fast as possible. That's important because at present, the fastest speed that we know is speed of light. And if I'm even in the Alpha Centauri area, it takes four years for something traveling at the speed of light to go from Alpha Centauri back to our solar system. That's a long time. I will mention here that Look, I'm not a physicist, but as a sort of philosopher of science, I never believed that speed of light is going to be such an absolute limit. It just doesn't make sense to me. You know, yeah, we can't figure out a way now to do it, but that's just because Einstein's theory, which has been very well corroborated, says it's not really possible. Einstein's theory replaced Newton's theory. Newton's theory replaced Ptolemy's theory. Someday Einstein's theory will be replaced. It may not be in my lifetime, but I predict there'll come a time where there will be faster than light travel. So essential to me uh, going out into space is to have a communication system that I can talk to the people I love back on Earth and even maybe do a podcast interview with you if I'm out on Alpha Centauri and we can do it without having to wait four years for our questions and answers to go back and forth. Rightful. Well, thank
0: you so much, Paul. This was, this was a great conversation. I, like I said, this
1: schmooze would be a hoot. It really was. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. And uh, I'll be happy to tell the whole world about it, even anybody who's out in the Alpha Centauri area. Okay, great. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. This episode of Space Midrash was directed by me, Jacob Sager, right here on planet Earth and produced by Brand New Colors, LLC.